0: Let us now turn in our Bibles once again to the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, a chapter in which the Apostle Paul deals with the theme of marriage. And we will pick up at verse 10 and read through verse 24. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning with verse 10. But first, let us go before our God in prayer. O Lord, just as we have sung, we need Thy Spirit, Lord. And we ask that the Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer here, here, will work within us according to the almighty resurrection power of Jesus Christ. To help us to hate sin and love righteousness, and to find that our wills are more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And we ask, Father, that lost people who may be here or who are or later will hear the Word proclaimed, we pray that they will be drawn out of sin and darkness, out of blindness, indeed spiritual death, unto life everlasting in Christ Jesus. And it would be a wonderful thing, and for which we pray, that even though the people of God grow in holiness of life when we together open the Word, we would also pray that there would never be a service in which someone did not come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Bless now as we read this portion of Scripture, illumine its page through the powerful work of the Spirit of God, open our hearts and help us to receive its truth and to conform our hearts unto it. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our sovereign Lord. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning with verse 10. Picking up where we left off last week. This is God's Word. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him." For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was any one at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was any one at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision." For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called, do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, He who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called there, let him remain with God. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, Paul... The Apostle, by divine inspiration, answers questions in this chapter that were asked of him by letter from members of the church at Corinth. And in this particular place, he is answering questions that related to marriage and divorce and several other matters, all of them having to do with marriage. Now, in those first nine verses we saw last week, these very, very important truths. And that is an extraordinarily important passage for marriage. We see first of all in verses 1 through 9 that the Apostle Paul said that marriage is good, that it is one, not the only, but one ordained method of avoiding fornication that marriage calls for ongoing mutual intimacy for the one man and one woman relationship bound together in holy matrimony. And we also saw that celibacy is a gift that not everyone possesses, and in most cases, those not so gifted should seek to marry. Now Paul goes on and he addresses other questions that have been passed on to him, and he begins with the very difficult subject of divorce. And Before we actually move here, let me say that there are those here who have been or are hurt deeply because of some of the issues that the Apostle Paul addresses. This is part of the life of the people of God that needs to be addressed. And in addition to that, there will be questions that the Apostle Paul does not answer And certainly we cannot say everything that the Bible says about this theme in this one sermon as we are focused upon this passage. Nonetheless, there are things here that are very clear and some that are very hard for us to learn in the heart, and we want to have submission to the Word. So with that in mind, the first thing we see is divorce. and We find it in verses 10 and 11, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord the wife should not separate from her husband but if she does she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife when paul the apostle says here not i but the lord he means that he is referring to what jesus said in his earthly ministry in matthew 5:32 19:3 through 9 mark 10:2 through 12 luke 16:18 and the apostles in their churches would have known those things that Jesus had taught. So he is saying here, the Lord Jesus addressed these things in his earthly ministry. Now, in verses 10 and 11, he is saying, and here he is speaking to believers or professed believers, a professing Christian husband, a professing Christian wife. That becomes plain because in the next section, he's going to talk about a believer and an unbeliever. So here he is talking to two professing believers, and what he is really saying to them is, be determined that you will, in your marriage, keep that marriage until death you do part. He's addressing professing Christians, and Jesus taught that adultery broke the covenant and was a legitimate reason for permissible divorce. Divorce is the result of sin. However, not all divorce is sinful. Some spouses have a biblical reason for divorce, namely, when one party has been unfaithful through adultery. This is a biblical reason that divorce may occur. Sinfully divorced parties, however, where there was no adultery and, as we will see, no desertion, sinfully divorced parties are commanded to remain unmarried by God himself through the Apostle Paul in verse 11, and should seek to be reconciled. Having divorced sinfully, they should not add to that by marrying. They should seek reconciliation for the marriage. Why? Because Jesus said that what God had brought together, let no man separate. Using the word here, karizo, meaning separation by divorce. Do not allow into your marriage, the Apostle Paul is ultimately saying underneath it all, do not allow into your married lives that which will destroy marriage. And I want to say that we cannot divorce this chapter from what Paul the Apostle has said earlier in the book when he set up the whole book with his discussion of the word of the cross. Surely he means for us to remember that as we work our way through everything that he is saying here by inspiration. Christian homes and marriages are endangered to the extent that we are forgetful of the cross of Christ. If we glory in the cross husband and wife, if we are focused upon Christ who shed his blood for sinners, then our marriages will grow and grow in godliness. If you will, keep your mark here, but turn to Malachi chapter 2. This is the last book in the Old Testament. And in Malachi chapter 2, the Lord is bringing a rebuke of those who have profaned the covenant of grace. (laughs) And he gives a couple of reasons for the, the severe rebuke that he brings, but beginning in verse 13, he gives a second reason, and it's there we're going to focus, in Malachi 2, verse 13, where God says, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking, godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit And let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. These men are bringing their offerings to the Lord in sacrifice their offerings are rejected of the Lord. And they wonder why when they are not being faithful to the wives of their youth, when the covenant between that man and that woman reflects the covenant that God makes with His own people through the very sacrifice to which those sacrifices point, the blood of the covenant the blood of Jesus Christ that would be shed. They were not keeping first and foremost an understanding of what the sacrifices even meant. They cared nothing for God's will. They cared only for their own. They were completely wrapped up in self. They were not willing to do what God commanded, And they did not understand what redemption through blood even meant. Now let me say to us, there is another possibility in translating a portion of this passage. And it can read, and I have always thought is the best reading. You can see it perhaps in your marginal reading. For the Lord, the God of Israel, says that He hates divorce and Him who covers. God hates divorce. And even though men and women both need to be spoken to, from the Word of God about this, let me say to the men of this church, men, let us be sure that we are glorying in the cross, understanding the depth of redemption that has been granted to us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, Let us be faithful to the wives of our youth. Let us not allow anything to come into our homes and marriages that would be destructive of the marriage bond that leads us to do self-centered, ugly things that destroy relationships, destroy the lives of the people that we are called to love most, that bring disrepute upon the name of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And that leads us away from the gospel, even in many cases, showing that we are not the ones that we have professed ourselves to be. Leading us to do unmanly things rather than doing what God calls men to do and calling what men are to be. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul says. And Malachi, I think, reinforces it. Now let's see secondly. Divorce among the unequally yoked. Divorce among the unequally yoked. And we find it in verses 12 through 16. So in verses 12 and 13, the Apostle says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And so he's dealing with the matter of, and the Lord Jesus did not address this in his earthly ministry, which is what he means when he says, I, not the Lord. Paul certainly, of course, is writing as an apostle by divine inspiration. So the question is that has been brought to him is, what if an unbelieving spouse is willing to remain in the marriage with a believer? Many may have come to Christ, and their spouses did not come to faith in Christ. They remained remained unconverted pagans, thinking and living as pagans live. There must have been examples in Corinth of that, probably many of them, and there are examples, of course, in our day as well. So, may a believer divorce an unbeliever where no adultery has taken place and remarry or live singly? They may want the sorts of marriages they see with other Christians around them. They may want to be out of a very, very hard and difficult situation, and that's understandable. But the answer that God gives through Paul the Apostle to that question is no. If the unbelieving spouse is willing to remain, then stay in the marriage. To the rest I say not to the Lord means that Jesus did not directly address that question in his ministry. It cannot mean that Paul is simply giving his opinion. So if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. It's very clear. The reasons... Why must the spouse who has come to Christ continue with a marriage with an unbelieving spouse when the differences cut right through everything that they hold dear? When one is a believer and one is not, one is born again, one is not, one is a child of God, one is not, one of them has the mind of Christ, one of them does not, why must they remain together? Well, even though the Lord is not required to give us reasons, He does here, He gives us reasons. And the first reason is consecration. He says in the first part of verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now he's not speaking here when he says holy of personal salvation. But that the unbeliever, because of his marriage to an unbelieving wife or wife to husband, is set aside. One Christian in an unbelieving home, brings grace to that home. I also would say that it is not always the case, but it often is the case that if one spouse has come to faith in Christ and the other has not yet, it may well be that God is going to work within the whole family to bring the family to faith in Christ. So this may be worked out in a couple of ways. One is in relation to children. And so he goes on in verse 14 to say, let's read verse 14 again. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So he speaks of the position of children in the home. And only God chooses and saves, but Paul's concern seems to be a stable home environment as much as is possible for the children, so that the gospel influence of the believing parent will be known and felt in the heart of the child, and remembering also the unconverted husband or unconverted wife. Now, this is covenant theology at work. Children of believers are holy, that is, they are set apart, they are within the pale of the church, at least externally. Then he gives another reason, and that is the purpose of evangelism, verses 15 and 16. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And so the believing spouse is often used to bring the unbelieving spouse to the Lord. Charles Hodge says, On verse 15, 16, thereabout, he says, The command in the preceding verse was founded on the assumption that the unbelieving party consented to remain in the marriage relation. If the unbeliever refused thus to remain, the believer was then free. The believer was not to repudiate the unbelieving husband or wife, but if the unbeliever broke up the marriage, the Christian partner was thereby liberated from the contract. In all, pursue peace, says the Lord in this passage. Again, as Hodge says, the gospel was not designed to break up families or separate husbands and wives. Therefore, this one addition to a biblical reason for divorce is given to us in this passage. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. Using the word "karizō" that means separate that the Lord Jesus used in the context of divorce, meaning divorce. Separation by or leading to divorce. So very importantly, there are no other grounds given in Scripture for divorce than adultery or willful desertion. Again, Charles Hodge, that great Princeton theologian and exegete, Hodge said, First, because the Scriptures allow of no other grounds, and secondly, because incompatibility of temper, cruelty, disease, crime, and other things of like kind, which human laws often make the occasion for divorce, are not in their nature a destruction of the marriage covenant. The plain doctrine of the passage before us, as well as other portions of the Word of God, is that marriage is an indissoluble covenant between one man and woman for life. Admitting neither of polygamy nor of divorce. If the covenant be annulled, it can only be by the sinful act of one of the parties. Now, I suspect that what I just read to you from Charles Hodge seems very strange to us. But Hodge could say when he wrote this, this is the Protestant doctrine of divorce. And he was right that was the Protestant doctrine on the subject. And with rare exceptions, it was followed by Christians and by the church. But we have developed the idea that what we consider to be compassionate should dictate our actions and personal happiness is of first-rank importance. And we expand out sometimes almost indefinitely the possible reasons that divorce would be acceptable. Therefore, divorce is rampant in the church for reasons that are not biblical, and this is to be deplored. Because the church is not the world, and we should not look like the world, and we should not act like the world. Our standard is God's Word. So I hope that you all who marry now or later, or are married, I hope that you'll all have very happy and fruitful marriages. But if you find yourself in a marriage that is not, discipleship means bringing glory to God, often in very hard and difficult circumstances, learning to live for eternity and not for the present. And so the Lord has his purpose in the hardship of our lives. Adultery or willful desertion of a believer by an unbeliever are the only grounds for divorce. Now, all kinds of questions are going on in minds. I know that. What about when there is uh, the beating of one partner by another? Well, get out. Call the police. The Sixth Commandment. Be safe. But that's still not the issue here. The issue is divorce. What about the situation when a professing believer deserts another professing believer? Well, that's where church government is so important and church discipline is important. Because either the Lord will use the discipline to recover that unbeliever, that the professed believer, or it will show that that person is not a believer at all. And then, of course, you have the situation that he is addressing where a believer is deserted by an unbeliever. And it is then permissible. But in all of this, it becomes the calling of the believer to live for the glory of God in hard circumstances. And I'm your pastor. I'm deeply sympathetic with you in whatever hardship you endure. And I have walked with numbers of people through these hard, hard things. But I will tell you something else. I've also known spouses in both situations who have determined to obey the Lord and have become, despite their circumstances, deeply Christ-like. Which is one goal, according to Romans 8:28 and 29, of the Lord's work in our life through whatever situation may come in His providence. So let us not be wiser than God. My longing to remove a believer from a hard marriage might result in a person being deprived of what the Lord intends to make that person Christ-like and ripe for heaven. Now, these concerns are also addressed in our Westminster Confession of Faith. One of those paragraphs says, and let me remind you, that every teaching elder, ruling elder, and deacon in this church subscribes to the Confession of Faith because we believe it to be biblical. All that is taught here, we want to be biblical, and the subordinate standard is our Confession of Faith and Catechisms. In 24-6, the Westminster Confession says, Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments, that means find excuses, unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. And so, the civil law today makes it relatively easy to dissolve, and many of us have seen the whittling away, the erosion that has happened because of the broadening out of this concept of reasons for divorce. And the civil law makes it relatively easy to dissolve, legally that is, a marriage. The Bible does not. And our confession of faith, based on Scripture, does not. And I would remind us all that the Bible is our only infallible rule of faith and of practice. Not the state, not the culture, and not our feelings. It used to be said the Bible alone is the religion of Protestants, and it still should be the case. No wonder, then, the next segment is a call to contentment. That's the third thing, call to contentment, and it's found in verses 17 through 24. And I can't say everything that perhaps I would about this text this morning, but contentment in circumstances of life is the theme. He says in verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. The church is an institution that has been established by Christ not for the purpose of social change. That may be byproduct, but that's not our purpose. Not for social revolution. Rather, the mission of the church is to preach the gospel. And three times here, Paul calls upon Christians to be content rather than foment revolution. Revolution. Our tendency is to be focused on how we may change our hard circumstances. That's all natural to us. However, we are in Christ and our focus must be on Christ and obedience to Christ. The condition in which we are called. It's not our fate. We do believe in providence. We are called to hard circumstances. Jesus said in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. In stressing contentment under the circumstances the Lord has assigned to us, the apostle is underscoring providence and he is underscoring calling. Paul is saying, you are not where you are by accident. God in his providence has purpose in your circumstances. Our goal is to be Christian no matter what our circumstances or condition, no matter where we are no matter what we face. And a Christian who was a slave, even, he mentions here in the first century Roman Empire, is not not to make freedom his first concern. Though if he could legitimately gain his freedom, he should do so, says Paul. But Paul says this should not be his main concern, which is the point of verse 21, where you were a slave when called, do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. What? should be my concern as a believer in Jesus Christ in the hard circumstances that I face. What must be my main concern? What must matter is obedience to God's commands. Verse 19, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And so the saved person justified by grace through faith alone is to live for the glory of God and to be obedient to his word. What matters is that we live as those who are free in Christ no matter where in his providence he has placed us. Verses 22 and 23 underscores that when it speaks of the slave and freedom. Again, Hodge The gospel is just as well suited to men in one vocation as in another, and its blessings can be enjoyed in all their fullness equally in any condition of life. So we're free in Christ no matter what our external circumstances may be, and it's in that freedom that we obey God and His Word. Because, he says in verse 23, please look at it, you were bought with a price, do not become slaves of men. What is Paul saying? We are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must not become spiritual slaves of men following the ways of the world. And here we see that the Christian viewpoint is totally different than the viewpoint of the world. And that's what really stands out to me in this passage. How countercultural this is. How totally different from the way the world thinks. Do we believe that God and his providence has a purpose for where we are? And that we must endure to the glory of God. And can we even do so, if not in happiness, with joy before God? The context then leads us to apply these principles to marriage. And the principles are adultery and desertion being the only exceptions. Remain in your calling. Paul does not say that if you're in danger, you should remain in the house. There are all sorts of questions that I've said that Paul's not dealing with at the moment. But the point is clear. Believe that God in His providence has a purpose for where you are or may be in a marriage that may not satisfy. One of those purposes surely is conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, another text that helpfully makes this point we read earlier, Pastor McDonald read to us from First Peter chapter 2, 11 through 15, uh, 25. In that passage, you might remember that he says we are aliens, we're strangers in this world. The Christian submission while suffering unjustly, however, even of slaves to whom he was writing, finds favor with God. And Peter says that when we suffer unjustly, it is our calling. It's not our fate. It is our calling. We are called to follow closely in the steps of the Savior marked out for us in His atoning work. He was innocent, silent, entrusted Himself to the one who judges justly only through the wounds that heal, addressing slaves. The wounds that heal only through them. Can we follow this example and also recognizing that we are shepherded, he says, by the bishop of our souls, by Jehovah through it all. And then when he turns to marriage in chapter 3 of First Peter, the first seven verses, he harks back to what he has just said. And he addresses marriage, taking into consideration, he is saying, the things that I already have said to the condition of slaves. The point is, simply, that we must learn as Christians to trust God's providence, that we realize suffering also is from the Lord's hands, that we learn to be mute Christians under the rod and learn to kiss the rod. And I think it's the hardest thing that we have to learn. It puts unjust suffering in an altogether different light when we do. When we see that, if in God's providence this is where we are, we please God in Christ like suffering when we understand that it is our calling and not our fate. We do not live in a chance universe. Let me bring this to conclusion with pointing something out to us. Notice in verse 23, the apostle says, you were bought with a price, do not become slaves of men. In the prior chapter, chapter 6, verse the end of 19 and verse 20, you are not your own for you were bought with a Christ, so glorify God in your body. Twice the Apostle Paul says this, bracketing these themes for us, saying to us, if I'm purchased with Christ's blood, I'm free from sin and from the dominion of sinful man's approach to life, including suffering, including circumstances from which I cannot extricate myself. I'm still God's freeman in Christ, Redeemed by his precious blood, by the one who was born in Bethlehem of the Virgin, who walked this earth and obeyed the law that I broke, who suffered in Gethsemane and sweat, as it were, drops of blood on my behalf, who was scourged by men and bore the cross to Calvary, and there on Calvary's hill, Jehovah's wrath was poured out upon the one who cried out, It is finished. And He did all of that for me. Purchasing eternity for me. No matter what I face in this life. And my spirit answers to the blood of Christ. And the Holy Spirit assures me that I am born of God. And this is why I now want to live for Him. Bought with a price, we shun all that is unchaste. Our bodies and souls belong to the Lord. But also... We are free in the midst of suffering, and we are His servants and not the servants of men, no matter what our circumstances may be or how it might appear. So men demand things of us that we have to do, but that earthly taskmaster cannot control the heart that is purchased by the blood of Christ and sealed by the Spirit of God. And this is behind everything that is written here by Paul the Apostle. He's not saying this out of context of the gospel, out of context of all that he has said about the word of the cross. And he makes that plain in chapter 6 verse 20 and repeating it in chapter 7 verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. And so let us also be determined that we will not follow the world's view of marriage, but the Lord's the earthly pain and sorrow and distinctions will soon pass away and then, then, people of God, we will realize what it means that we are redeemed at the price of blood and we belong and have belonged ever since He died for us. To Him. Now Paul is dealing with the harder aspects of marriage. You know that in Ephesians 5 he deals with the the Christian couple that loves the Lord and how they are to see all of this in the context of the redeeming work of Christ. I want you to imagine for a moment that there you stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And there is is your husband, if you're married. And there is your wife, if you're married. This... This man, this woman in holy matrimony united that have gone all through life together serving the Lord as a redeemed of the Lord and obeying his commands, though faultily, yet with a heart and a will to grow and to mature together. And the wife at the judgment seat, imagine her saying, oh, Savior, I'm so thankful that I was given this man in thy providence. He loved me, and he showed it, and he guided me to Jesus, and he prayed with me, and he, he helped me to become the woman of God that, that I, I, I needed to be, that I might be the wife and mother and the servant of Jesus that I needed to be. And this husband says, oh, I'm so thankful for this woman. Thank the Lord for giving to me this wonderful wife. She loved me. She served me. She helped me when I was... When we married, I was really only a boy, but I grew into a man, a real man. And she helped me patiently to become that man that God would have me to be. What a wonderful wife. And the children are all there. They're all gathered together, you see. And the children, the children say, Oh, Savior... How thankful we are for mom and dad that you brought them together in holy matrimony. It was in the providence of God. It was heaven sent. And, and we are thankful. You know, dad had family worship with us every night. When, when he couldn't be there, mom let it. And every night we sang hymns and we heard the word and we prayed together. And, and we, were, we never missed a worship service. Again, unless we were really sick, even though we wanted to at times. But we grew into that too. We came to understand what the Gospel was all about because Mom and Dad, they taught us the Gospel. They led us to Jesus. And we're saved by the blood of Christ, by the blood of the Lamb. We're here today because of the blood, but the same Christ who died for us is the Christ who also gave us this mom and dad who brought the message to us, who spoke it, who lived it before us, who put us under faithful preaching, and our Sunday school teachers taught us. And oh, how thankful we are that we know the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all here because of the blood of the Lamb, and Father and Mother taught us the message and the circle. The circle is unbroken for eternity. Men, women, those of us married or who will be, that's the kind of marriage we want, don't we? That's the kind of marriage we should seek to have. Amen.